In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This past fall, I started back to school. I'm a lifelong learner. I've always valued the fact that one always has something to learn and grow to understand more fully, no matter the age nor experience level. As I prepared for my first week-long intensive this past summer, my girls had a great time trying to figure out what grade I'd be in. You remember those <laughs> ages, right? Are you in this grade or that? And I said, oh, I kind of lost count. Um, and, and then they wanted to know, of course, would you have a backpack? Would you have homework like we have homework? And, and all those sorts of kind of connecting pieces. And as we arrived on campus, our first morning was spent with opening introductions. Everyone in the class had a minimum of five years' experience in ministry, so we, we shared a little bit about who we were, our ministry context, and then we were asked to share one interesting fact about ourselves. And as each row progressed and we neared the back of the room, one colleague near me, whose name was also Greg, um, shared what seemed to be a rather underwhelming fact. He said, I simply love ice cream. And I thought, well, gee, I guess he just didn't really have anything else that came to mind. Um, but in the course of the week, over the next 10 days as we were together and Greg was in my focus group, I realized that he was being quite truthful. Um, every night, every single night after we had dinner, Greg would find a new ice cream parlor to go and try ice cream from. And he shared that um, he also ran every morning to keep up his habit of ice cream um, so that he could enjoy it without too, too much guilt. So as the week progressed, he first began with our group, and he'd invite us to come along. And on my first night, yes, you caught that, on my first night, there were subsequent visits, um, we went out and discovered that Greg knew his stuff. I mean, he was passionate about ice cream. It wasn't just something he enjoyed, but he could tell you why the textures and creaminess were different than others, and even where the, the places that they originated. He could tell you about different mixtures and things, and um, even his own ice cream machine that he'd procured over COVID um, so that he could keep up his discipline. Um, and as the week went on, I think on the final night or so, Greg had recruited more than half the class to join us in one of those frequent last visits as he had shared this passion with everyone he could. I discovered as well that his wife was quite pleased that he had found people that he could convey his passion to <laughs> because after their last vacation with every stop that was planned around an ice cream parlor, she said, honey, you've altogether ruined ice cream for me for the rest of my life. And she said, but here's the good news. If ministry falls through, You've got a backup plan. You can open an ice cream parlor. And she said, and I'd suggest you might call it Holy Cow Ice Cream Parlor. <laughs> Probably in a way that only a spouse can do, pointing to both the humor and perhaps a little bit of an edge of idolatry that she saw with him on this particular taste of his. Could be a 12 stop. You know, it was a good thing, too. right? Yeah. <laughs> so they discovered that um, quite quickly, the two of them um, didn't quite have the same expectations and passions uh, about their particular loves. And I share that this morning because today, as we have this gospel reading before us from Luke chapter 3, 
I think therein is a wonderful lesson that expectations, at least initially we see, don't line up around who Jesus is as every single person is quickly awaiting what he will be like and what he will do. In fact, if you turn back with me there in your Bible or you follow along on the screen, I think as we delve into this topic of evangelism, we discover three lessons that might be key ingredients, if I can further that image, for evangelism that assist us from this passage as we dive into it and look at this part of our walk with Jesus. As we open to this passage, remember where we are. There's about to be a transition that's taken place. John the Baptist has been setting the stage for Jesus' entrance in um, a public form and fashion, the beginning of his ministry. And the time is quite rife. In fact, we discover that the people are in expectation. That very word is there in verse 15 about um, what would come next. And their expectation, of course, is now beginning to be placed upon John the Baptist himself. Was perhaps this who they're looking for? Or if it's not John, will this promised Messiah that John has been setting the stage for act, look, behave like John will and has thus far? The expectations are running high about who Jesus is and who Jesus will be and what he will do and how he will interact with them. And we discover quite quickly that as John, in verse 16, dismisses this quite uh, affirmatively, that he is not the Messiah, John tells us, of course, quoting some biblical passages of old, that, um, no, this Messiah would come and baptize them with the Holy Spirit and fire to cleanse and purify, to, uh, like at the harvest, separate the wheat from the chaff, and would play this role of judgment to see through all that John had set the stage for thus far. But we notice that as John dismisses this fact, it's quick to see that John himself has his own expectation of who Jesus will be and what Jesus will do and how he will interact. The expectations of John are quite high. In fact, we discover in this passage it points to, quite quickly, John's own arrest. And you might recall from the other gospel writers that it's from prison that John sends his own disciples to Jesus and says, Are you he? Are you truly he who we've been waiting for? Or shall we look for another? John's not even convinced, even from prison, that maybe Jesus is the Messiah because what he thinks that um, this Messiah should come in form of judgment. And indeed, he would. Jesus will at his second coming, but didn't come in that form right up front. And so John's own expectations are confronted. And I share that to say that as we begin to look at evangelism, I think we have to begin there. When we think about the ingredients for evangelism, we must begin by evaluating our own expectations. Not just our expectations of what will happen when it's presented or how people will respond, but even our expectations of what we think Jesus will do or how he'll show up and look at all of those pieces in our own hearts and our own lives. Because in many ways, those frame or uh, keep us at arm's length from this whole topic um, or place a certain burden upon this topic 
or whatever the case may be. We all come to this conversation of evangelism, of sharing our faith with different expectations. Being honest about where those are or where those lie, at least initially, is a, a fundamental starting point. Because hopefully, wherever we begin that conversation, we can be open-handed enough to open up to the Lord, at the very least, about where our expectations lie. Certainly in prayer to offer him our own doubts, our own concerns, our own fears, our own understandings, our own expectations of what he will or won't do, um, what it will mean for us and our relationships with others, and the list can go on and on. And then might I suggest that hopefully that conversation isn't limited to just you and the Lord, but you'll avail yourself, as you can today and in the weeks to come, about having a conversation with others who might say, you know what, you're not the only one who's terrified of this topic, um, or you're not the only one who's tried 25 times and gotten no great response, and that there might be others who can spur you on, or who might be able to say, you know, it helped me when I reframed the conversation in this way. So I hope that we can begin to look at our expectations, be open and honest before the Lord, but then also with one another, so that we can begin from a place of openness, first and foremost, around this topic. And this first ingredient, though, is not the only in fact, if we turn back to the text itself, we discover a second one that arises there in verse 18 and following. If you look back with me there, we see that John's ministry has faithfully, consistently, and continually exhorted the people, wherever they are, to come to understand and square up against their own heart work in preparation for the Messiah. In fact, what's so beautiful and transparent about John the Baptist is it didn't just happen in the public sphere when he's at the riverside in front of all of these people, but it hits those of low degree and those of high degree altogether. In fact, we discover, of course, that this is the very reason he lands himself in prison. He has no qualms telling anyone and everyone what they must do to prepare for the Messiah including Herod, the, the ruler of the region. Now, coming off Christmas, we do well to remember this isn't the same Herod. That Herod died, of course, right, when Jesus and his family fled to Egypt. This is one of his latter descendants. And he's run afoul of John because John has called him out on this relationship that he's taken his brother's wife to be his own, in addition to all the kind of immoral acts that he's allowed to pass under his rule, to kind of try to split the difference, if you will, between the Jewish law and the Roman rule that he has been placed under. And so John has no qualms telling him about these things, and it's not because John takes pleasure in pointing fingers at everyone for their mistakes, but because John is so passionate, so zealous, so emboldened by what he knows, believes, and is held to that it fuels him on in everything that he does and in every conversation, regardless of the outcome, which we know led to him losing his own head in the very end, did it not? And I think therein, perhaps, is a second ingredient for us. Not that you lose your own head, but rather that as we look at the ingredients for evangelism, it does begin with our own expectation, but it also continues to a place 
where we, like John, must have such enthusiasm, such zeal for the Lord. And that, of course, we know can only happen if we've had an encounter with the Holy Spirit time and time and time again throughout the course of our life, even the course of our own day. Whether it begins in those encounters that embolden us in prayer where we ask for the needs of those around us and the world around us, and with enthusiasm we see that God does indeed show up. If you ever have not taken the discipline of tracking your own prayer requests, do it for the very sake that you get to delete the ones or erase the ones or line the ones out when God heals, restores, or does something. And that is an encouraging thing for us. And also, when we think about the ways that we engage God's Word, and we realize the ways that God has patterned for us to live, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, and we begin to try to embrace those things, and we realize that it brings us joy or peace or a different way of looking at life, um, these things stir up within us. Because after all, evangelism is not about the best practices, the most ardent argument, having an answer to everyone's question about every single detail and every 66 you know, books of the Bible, but it's about your passion that you actually believe and walk that out. And when people see the authenticity of our faith, that, that passion, that authenticity is what wins them. It's not their arguments or well-crafted statements. I mean, they have computers in their hands. They can look all that up. But when they see what that looks like, and the life of someone who's so strengthened and encouraged by that, they don't have anything with which to square up against other than to say that this must be true. Um, or at least it certainly is absolutely true of that individual. And so it begins with us that we should have such passion that as we begin to spill over into those conversations, it comes from a place where we've encountered God and from such a passion and zeal and enthusiasm, we let that bubble over into our lives with others. Because after all, the end result of evangelism is actually seen at the end of our passage, and it's quite simple. And it's quite simply this, that all would have an encounter with Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. In fact, that's where this ends, is it not? That in all of this expectation and all of this enthusiasm and preparation of John, it leads up to this moment in verse 21 and following, where Jesus enters the scene, is baptized, and in that moment marks the end of John's ministry and the hinging point in the beginning of Jesus' ministry as the baton is passed, and all have a profound encounter. All encounter in this passage, and those like it throughout the gospel, um, correlations, one of the few places that we see the Trinity on full display. God the Son, Jesus Christ, stands out of the waters of baptism as God the Holy Spirit descends bodily in the form of a dove, and God the Father proclaims from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In that moment, everybody has an encounter with God. And as they do, John's work is done because now Jesus' work begins. And all their expectations, all their ideas, all their um, hopes and dreams now get squared up against Jesus as he does what he does and begins to reframe and move that whole journey towards the cross, something that they weren't 
expecting. And so I think there, perhaps, is one last lesson for us, a last ingredient, if you will, to ponder. Namely, that from such squaring of our expectations, from such encounters that lead to such zealous enthusiasm, that really we're called to bring others to the very thing that we have had, experienced, and lived out time and time again. Namely, that they might encounter Jesus as well. That's our one job. That's our one job to do. You don't have to worry about whether they make a commitment, whether they reject Jesus or any of that. That's, that's God's work to do. Ours is merely to bring him to them, and all the rest of the work is God's. Um, and that's kind of a freeing place to be because we don't have to place the whole burden of the conversation on an outcome that we think it might reach or may not reach or what it'll occur for us or did I say it well enough or did I leave something out or the list goes on and on and we get in that treadmill of is it, is it my fault or, or, or did I do it well? Here's the good news. It's not about you or me. It's about bringing them to a place where God can do what God alone can do in converting the hearts of men and women and children who encounter him. And that's a freeing thing. And so it's our job to bring them before him in prayer and in conversations and in these ways that we move them toward him, and then he does the work that is his alone to do. And so that's a wonderful and freeing thing for us when we think about it. And the joy for us, especially on this day, this day where we celebrate the baptism of Jesus, is that we're reminded, and little Ellie here, of the outcome of the Christian faith, which should be these celebratory moments where hopefully, on someone's own terms, they come to see and encounter the Lord and make a decision to turn to him. So that's why the church has always elevated and pulled forward with such gusto and extra, you know, superhero capes and all these other things that we do on baptismal days because it's the moment that we celebrate. That's what we pray for and that's what we hope will reach the lives of those who encounter the risen Lord. And so today, we pull that forward because baptisms remind us of it. So my prayer for you, church, is this, that in just a moment, as we get into that renewal of our baptismal vows, that it would be a moment where we recognize that we need to square our own expectations of Jesus to who we turn to, and that it would be a moment whereby we recommit ourselves or we ask to be emboldened and encouraged and impassioned to lead the life that we proclaim to lead therein, and that from that place and from this place, we go out into the world so that others might merely encounter Jesus Christ in us, and that as they do so, God's work may begin in their heart, so that whether that work begins in their encounter with you, continues, or is completed, Jesus Christ might be known, and therefore one more soul might come to him so that they may be brought into the household of faith, just as we bring Ellie in today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.